Hello everyone, my name is JT Wistersill and I'm excited to welcome you to another edition of the From the Stands podcast on today's show. Breaking down Super Bowl 55 and all the matchup that was. Sure, the game wasn't the greatest, but there is still a lot to talk about. Then, moving on to the Carson Wentz situation. What that has been like so far, see the potential teams he could end up on since the Eagles are going to be moving off of him. Then, we move on to some NBA news and highlight a certain ball brother. And of course, it is not Lonzo. <laughs> but moving on we to the Super Bowl. That's where we got to start here. Let's start with that Buccaneers defense and the job Todd Bowles did overall calling this the game plan he put together. Todd Bowles is a defensive coordinator who loves to blitz. That's what he's made his career off of is blitzing and something he's done for a while. So it was really impressive that he was able to say you know what he really evaluated the game plan went through the film and said we got an advantage up front our four guys can whip their five guys on the offensive line and that's what they did he didn't blitz sat back in coverage double teamed travis kelsey and tyreek hill a lot and those guys did a great job executing on that end too guys like carlton davis sean murphy bunting antoine winfield jr throwing up the deuces too those guys all did a great job taking away a guy in hill who last time went for over 200 yards against them so really good job playing zone coverage. And when they did go some man situations using those double teams, they completely erased Sammy Watkins, who many people you probably thought, oh, he might not be healthy, might not be playing because he barely showed up. He had one catch in this game for a while. I myself forgot he was playing just because of what a non-factor he absolutely was. But the next thing we got to talk about when we talk about this Buccaneers defense is those front four guys, Shaq Barrett, the Dominican Sioux, Vita Vea, and Jason Pierre-Paul. Those guys absolutely got after it. Each one of those guys had multiple quarterback pressures. They were winning inside, outside. There were a few situations where they kicked Pierre-Paul and Shaq Barrett inside and moved Vita Vea and Sue to the outside just for matchups because they went, hey, these guards are not good in pass protection right now. We can take advantage of those guys there. Their tackles obviously are a bunch of backups too. So they were having their way all over the place with this Tampa Bay offensive line. Such a good job by them winning their one-on-ones creating and causing havoc. Also, how about the linebackers? Devin White and Levante David. I think they're the best linebacker tandem in the NFL. I was so impressed by these guys and the job they did. Devin White, he's only 22 years old. and His sideline to sideline quickness is insane. He's always able to track down the ball. He's done a much better job in coverage than his rookie year. And it's that's what's crazy. He's only in his second year in the NFL. And he had the game pay closing pick of course as well and Levante David he might be the unsung hero for this team because yeah those other guys got the sacks even White got the pick but the job Levante David did shutting down Travis Kelsey for large chunks of this game was extremely impressive yes there were situations where Kelsey was able to get open and beat him but the big third down when Kel when Mahomes looked to Kelsey Kelsey fell down got back up and David still covered and stayed right on top of him knocking the ball away that was a really impressive job and we've seen a lot of linebackers most teams linebackers just can't cover Travis Kelsey. And that's one of the things the Buccaneers defense had was a linebacker who did a really good job on him. So great job by this Buccaneers defense. 10 different players had at least two pressures, which is crazy. Give credit to Todd Bowles and the job they did. But of course, let's shift over to the Chiefs side of things. Now, the Chiefs offense, Mahomes was pressured 52% of his dropbacks. It's 20, which is good for 29 times. Most of any quarterback in the Super Bowl ever he also ran for 497 yards before throwing the ball. That was the most of the season. I got to believe that's the most in the Super Bowl, too. So just insane stuff. As I talked about, they this crappy Chiefs offensive line let 10 different players get at least two pressures. So everyone was eating up and down. The three main culprits to me 
is where it all stems from is this Eric Fisher injury at left tackle because they had to reshuffle everything. If Fisher's healthy, I think this could have been a different game and a little bit of a closer game. And speaking of health, Mahomes was not 100%. Yes, he was moving around all over the place, but they didn't call the sprint out, roll out plays as much as they usually do. You could tell he was not 100% based on the game plan, and he was just a little gimpy doing little things. Still spectacular and made a bunch of plays that, if completed, our highlights were watching forever. If we're going down the blaming line of this Chiefs offense, I honestly, I think I put Mahomes at the bottom. I think at number one, I put this offensive line. At number two, I would put, oh, it's hard to go. Either coaches like or the pass catchers right in there. Then you could go the running backs in there because at least Clyde did some good things in stretches. And then Mahomes. I really believe he deserves the least amount of blame. There's still, you can definitely still find some blame and things he did wrong in this game, but I think he deserves the least amount of blame. But getting back to this offensive line. So what happens was Eric Fisher goes down. So what do they do? They move their right guard, Andrew Wiley, over to right tackle, bring in Steve Wisniewski, who started for them last year in their Super Bowl run, who started the year with the Steelers, and the Steelers cut him, so then he lands on them. And they move Mike Remmers over to left tackle who has had he's been in the league for a while. He was the he was the starting right tackle on the Carolina Panthers team that was in the Super Bowl a few years ago. He was on the Vikings for a little bit, then the Giants. He's on his th- third team in 3 years now in the Chiefs. So, and this is where things really went wrong. Wiley, they attacked him. They really attacked their right tackle Wiley. I mean, it was whether it was Barrett and Adamican Sue, JPP, all those guys were eating at him. And the amount of times where he would just get beat instantly off the snap was embarrassing. And they, it's a good thing they didn't have film the next day, the Chiefs, because this offensive line, oh, they would have, you would not want to see, you would not want to watch that film. I'm sure, man, maybe they will, maybe they won't, but it is brutal, especially for Wiley. Remmers, yeah, he got his butt kicked all day too by Shaq Barrett. And there's a funny connection there, because if you remember, Mike, Mike Remmers, I said, Panthers left tackle. Well, they played in the Super Bowl, those Denver Broncos. Do you know who was a backup on those Denver Broncos? It was Shaq Barrett. He was Von Miller's backup as an undrafted free agent over there. So he took some notes watching Von Miller bend around the edge and get that strip sack on Cam Newton that ended up being the defining play of that Super Bowl. Miller himself had two-plus sacks in that game. And Shaq took some notes. He maybe even called Von this week and said, hey, I'm going against your old friend. What do you know about him that I can give him some stuff? And Remmers is well past his prime from those 2015 days as well, so... It was a really long day for them. And just it's just the amount of times where it's called. So a jailbreak in football is when basically everyone gets through. Sometimes like a lot of times you'll see screens. The Buccaneers ran a really good screen in this game where Cameron Brake caught a ball and went about 20 yards, I believe. That's a really good executed screen. You let them through. Jailbreak is when you're not supposed to let them through and they still all get through. There are multiple times throughout the game. It looked like a screen pass because two guys would get through almost instantly. But no, it's just the offensive lineman doing that poor of a job and getting beat that quickly. So didn't really even give the Chiefs offense a chance to be successful because you have to give your quarterback an offense time. Couldn't get anything going in the run game. Couldn't give Mahomes time to pass. And when he did have time to pass, how about let's move over to those receivers? Travis Kelsey. There was a number of balls he dropped throughout this game. Yes, he had 110 yards, but ask Travis Kelsey if he had a good game. He'd tell you no. Tyreek Hill. How about the ball that went right in between his hands and hit him in the face mask? Yes, it was a tough catch. He was jumping everything. But if you want us to win the Super Bowl and you talk as much and do all the stuff that Tyreek does, you got to come down with that play. So no sympathy there. How about Miko Hartman? We barely heard his name on the broadcast. I mentioned Sammy Watkins earlier too. So just really disappointed in those Chiefs pass catchers. Even a guy like Damian uh, Wilson or Darius Williams. I'm trying, they're backup running back out of Utah State. Either way, he's the one who the ball went right in between his hands and hit him right in the face mask that he dropped after Mahomes made that diving 30-yard near touchdown pass. So it's Damian Wilson, I just remembered. Either way, these are the kind of things and plays 
that make game. And the Chiefs just offense, they just didn't do a good job. The Chiefs offense also didn't adjust at all. 92% of the time, they only left in a five-man protection. With the dramatic mismatch that this was from an offensive line, defensive line standpoint, you couldn't have brought in an extra offensive lineman for some place to give you more time. We left an extra tight end in. I know you want to get Kelsey out, but bring in your backup tight end. Have him help out. Even the running back only staying in chip in a little bit. It's just the Chiefs, I don't think Reed and Eric Bieniemy did a very good job adjusting this game. And that, along with all the other factors I just went over, because there's a lot of them, is why this it was a blowout and 31 to 9. Now, the Chiefs offense, not very good. But the Buccaneers offense, that was pretty good. 31 points for them. And what was the key for them? It was also the offensive line, in my opinion. What was the key we talked about all week going into this game? You have to protect Brady. Brady was sacked one time earlier in the game, wasn't sacked again, was only pressured four times in general, which was the lowest he's ever been pressured in the Super Bowl. And this is not a bad Chiefs defensive line. You look at Frank Clark and Chris Jones. They did a pretty good job keeping both those guys in check after the early portion when Clark got the sack and Jones batted the ball. That was almost an interception, but there was the penalty issues. And we're going to get to those penalty issues in a little bit. But getting back on track with this, they also they did a really good job getting the run game going. That was something that really impressed me for this Buccaneers team. They only pretty much run a few plays. It's like basically just a zone. It's just like they run like one to two run plays basically just a zone where they go straight ahead at you and they just maul you just try to move you and then they run Leonard Fournette and Ronald Jones right up there and just get as many yards as, he, as they can they do that a lot to set up the play action pass but they were able to just run that basic zone play three times in a row and still get a first down and then the one time they added a little wrinkle to it where they pull the left guard get the kick out the Buccaneers have the Chiefs have to pack the box so much to try to stop because they're getting pushed around up front by this really good job by this offensive line that then it's just an easy run to the outside for the touchdown for Fournette there so so impressed by this Tampa offensive line and it was kind of funny just because they were really able to take advantage of the short little passes too. the play action usually sets up the deep shots but so often Leonard Fournette was open and give Tom Brady a ton of credit for seeing those checkdowns and making those plays keeping those drives alive extending them slow methodical drives keep that Chiefs offense off the field when they ended up being about an even snap count but that, a lot of that was the Chiefs having to go tempo and t in order to match that, the amount of snaps, especially late in the game when they became super ha pass heavy, even more than they usually are. So give the Bucks credit for doing a really good job. And another guy you got to shout out on the Buccaneers is Gronk. How about this? He had six catches for 67 yards and two touchdowns, making the biggest plays in the big moments. That's what Gronk has done all throughout his career. A few years ago in that crappy Super Bowl where it was Rams Patriots, where it was 13 to three, the biggest play of the game from an offensive standpoint was made by Gronk, who caught that big, I want to say it was a 30 to 40 yard. He dove out, caught it, got him down to the one yard line, and that allowed them to run it in with Sony Michelle. So this is what Gronk does in these games. He makes the big time plays and the big time moments, and you got to give him credit for that. I alluded to it with the run game, but just Leonard Fournette, Ronald Jones, the guy, job both those guys did throughout the year. I've been really impressed. One of the better young backfield tandems we have in the NFL. And I mean, what else can you say about Tom Brady? 21 for 29, 201 yards, three touchdowns. He did such a good job of taking what the defense gave him, taking the check downs. When it was time to go deep, he was accurate, hit Evans a few times. He hit Gronk the one time. Their connection coming up big as that play kind of broke down a little bit. And Gronk had to just move, move over to the left a little bit. And that ended up working out. So just so impressed by Brady, all he does. It's And seven Super Bowls. I mean, what can you say? If you are just talking about this game individually, I think there's a maybe a list of 10 NFL quarterbacks who could have won the Super Bowl based on how it played out. Just how you, if you just look at how that specific game played out. But there's not 10 quarterbacks who could have gotten them to that game. Because the confidence and the leadership that Tom Brady brings, 
He just makes you believe you can win. He makes the guys buy in. It's so impressive to watch him go out there and lead guys. He galvanizes the troops so well. He is one of the best leaders we've ever seen in the game. You got to give him a lot of credit. And the other guy we got to give a lot of credit to is Byron Leftwich, who he has done such a good job as an offensive coordinator this year. And in case you're a certain journalist listening, listening to this, yes, Byron Leftwich is the offensive coordinator, not Todd Bowles, as that was an awful blunder by that journalist the media member who asked that stupid post-game question. So Byron Leftwich, he did such a good job just all year calling games. And how about Bruce Arians getting out of the way, taking a step back, being like, you know what, Brady Leftwich, you guys know what you're doing. You figure it out. So a lot of credit to those guys there. And I'll even give shout-outs to guys like Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. They won a Super Bowl, and those guys were not huge factors in it. Yes, Evans had a couple of big catches. Godwin had nine yards in this game. And you didn't see anyone complaining on the sideline because these guys just want to win. Is there, there's probably a good chance Antonio Brown was complaining on the sideline, but he also caught a touchdown. And he also knows if he complains, he's going to be out of the league again. And this is his final, final chance. So, yeah, Antonio Brown being in the Super Bowl doesn't feel right because he's not a good person. All the issues you have there. And it's just an, it's an interesting thing whenever people talk about it. It's a very touchy subject is Antonio Brown on the Buccaneers because of all the, the things he's done. It doesn't really feel right the way he's gone about it. So, He'll just kind of be the one blemish on this team. So props to the Buccaneers again. And lastly, let's get to the Chiefs defense. The stupid mistakes and the penalties, I think, were what really killed this team. Whether it's lining up offsides, Mecole Hartman on special teams right there. You got Chris Jones retaliating after Ryan Jensen hits him. You punch him. Yes, Brady should have definitely been flagged. But if you're Tyron Matthew in that situation, this you can say this is critical, but it's just a fact. You've got to know that if you go at Tom Brady, you're going to get a flag for almost anything you do. So you got to be a little more restrained if you're Tyron Matthew. Yes, the refs threw a couple of too many flags, but those Chiefs corners are so physical. So I don't feel bad for them for getting those flags because their hands are all over them. They look guilty. Yes, it's not how the refs have been officiating it for most of the playoffs, but it's just a fact that these guys had their hands all over them. As to the end of the half situation right there, I don't have a huge problem with the Chiefs using their timeouts there because it's what they've done all year. Yes, it's a little greedy, and if you look at this, the the situation is totality. It wasn't a good idea, but it's what they've done all year, so that's why I wasn't really ready to bash it. And the two pass interference calls, the first one, I've gone back and forth. I kind of understand the first one because Breland does trip him up, and you, I do think that ball is catchable. So that one's close. I'd probably go towards, yeah, I thought it was. The second one, no way. Hail, they, Brady is airmailing that thing out the end zone because he sees his coverage. That was a horrible call on Tyron Matthew. That one I hated. There were a few other ones that were rough. The refs weren't great, but at the same time, the Chiefs still got pushed around this game. There were a number of times they got unnecessary roughness penalties because they were frustrated. I said they had to pack the box in a few instances because they couldn't stop the run. They really struggled to get pressure on this excellent Tampa offensive line. And it's just so impressive what they were able to do. They really, they struggled to cover those guys in some of those man situations. We saw a number of times them get beat or the pass interference as well for these Chiefs DBs. So it was just a rough outing for Steve Spagnuolo and this defense when we thought that the Buccaneers would have a hard time scoring on them, kind of like they did earlier. So good job by Bruce Arians, Tom Brady, Byron Leftwich, Todd Bowles. The adjustments all four of those guys made, and they did a great job. And speaking of someone else outside of the 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 guys on the field in terms of coaches and players. How about Jason Leach? Take a bow, man. General manager of the Buccaneers. The job he did putting this roster together. Absolutely exceptional. This roster was built through the draft and free agency guys. Yes, Brady coming over helps galvanize those guys. But why? those only new guys that really came in here 
because of Brady were Gronk and Antonio Brown. Antonio Brown helped out a little bit, as we mentioned, touchy subject, but he was still a threat for them out there. We're just talking a football standpoint. And then you also factor in Leonard Fournette coming over too. I don't know how much of that was Brady, but he could say he did, did that as well. But the rest of these guys, the offensive linemen they drafted, Wirfs and Winfield in the second round this year, even Tyler Johnson, a guy in the fifth round we saw make some nice plays for them. This defense was built through the draft, especially that secondary. Levante David and Devin White were both drafted out of there. Vita Vea was a first-round pick. The free agency moves, bringing in Shaq Barrett, Jason Pierre, and Dominican Sue, realizing you have to win in the trenches. I love the way that Jason Leach built this team, and he did a phenomenal job. The Buccaneers did a phenomenal job, and that's why they are Super Bowl champs. So lots of props to this Buccaneers team for winning the Super Bowl. Wish it could have been a little more competitive, but still always fun when it's Super Bowl time. Now, shifting off the Super Bowl, let's talk Carson Wentz. So the Eagles are going to trade Carson Wentz. They've been fielding offers from a few teams. We're going to get into the teams in a little bit. But just to gauge what a Carson Wentz trade, how much money the team is going to take on when they trade for him. On his deal, Carson Wentz has four years left. He has four years, $98.4 million left on the contract. 24.7 mil per year. The cap hit varies, but it's all kind of around that 25, 26 range in there. So he's expensive, but not as expensive as he is for Philly once they trade him. Philly would eat 33 million as a dead cap hit in 2021, the largest in NFL history by trading him, which just seems absolutely crazy that they'd be willing to do that. But it just looks like a broken relationship. I did not think Wentz would get traded because it sounded like they chose Carson Wentz over Doug Peterson, but it looks like they're ready to move off of both of them which is crazy, especially when you consider, by the way, still, Doug Peterson has a statue outside the stadium and he coached there for what? And it's been only two, three years. I think it's three years now since that Super Bowl. So just something else that's just really crazy when you sit back and think about how that played out. But like I said, Carson Wentz, he's owed a lot of money, but Philly wants to get rid of him. So what they want in return, I think because of the amount of dead cap hit they have to eat, they want to get the two first round picks like the Rams got for Stafford. The teams aren't willing to Offer that up for Wentz. Wentz had that one great year back in, I believe, what would it be? 2017, I'd say. 2017, he was great. He would have won the MVP that year if it wasn't for the injuries. But that's one of the problems with Wentz is he's always hurt. He's often injured. And it just makes things really difficult when you're training for a franchise quarterback and you don't know if he's going to be healthy. So that's one of the issues there. The inconsistent play as well. Like I said, 2017, awesome. But after that, I would say in 2019, he he was still really good and he didn't have a lot around him. But then this year, he was pressing. There were lots of bad decisions, lots of turnovers by him. So it's like, well, you don't know what you're getting. So that's why I think he's worth a first round pick. I do, especially if you're a quarterback needy team in the late. I would rather have him than Mac Jones. It's a personal preference. Yes, I know you have to take on more money for Wentz, but I still think if he gets in the right system with the right guys, he can get back to being a top 10 quarterback like myself and a lot of people had him coming into the 2020 season. So I do think it's still worth to trade a first round pick. They won't get two first round picks because of the injuries and the contract stuff and the inconsistent play, but that's just how it works right now. So let's talk about some potential teams. So these are the three outside the box, the ones for me. I got for that, the Panthers, the Saints, and the 49ers. For the Panthers, they're absolutely desperate for quarterback. Todd McShay reported that he had talked to Matt Rule down at the Senior Bowl and the coaching staff, and they said they just want to find that guy at quarterback help them win those extra eight games that they were within one score of that they ended up losing some of that they ended up losing them. They lost eight one possession games. So they want to get that guy in there who can take them to the next level. Maybe they think Carson Wentz is that guy. So that's why I think they're a sleeper for that. Next, you got the 49ers and the Saints. These so these two teams are pretty simple. Complete roster when you look at offensive lines, weapons, 
play calling is incredible in terms of Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay, both guys top five for sure. And I think those are why it would be really appealing to those two teams is you think, hey, this guy's got a ton of talent. We have an unbelievable supporting cast around him from coaching, from coaches to players. Let's make a move for him. I could really see those two, two happening as well. Even with the Saints and their unbelievably crazy cap situation, we've just talked about how the Eagles are literally going to eat $33 million in dead caps. So it makes you really wonder with the salary cap how everything works. That's why I think they could get a, a move done. But the two teams that have been heavily rumored and that do make the most sense are the Colts and the Bears. Let's start with the Bears. The Bears have been trying to figure out their answer at quarterback for some time now. Mitch Trubisky, they're moving off of him. It's definite. It's confirmed. He's a bust. He's never going to figure it out in Chicago. It's time to move on there. And I don't think anyone expects him to ever reach the heights that Bears fans were hopeful when they first picked him. So they got to get a quarterback in there. Nagy wants a guy who can air it out and sit in the pocket and make decisions. And yes, they got Nick Foles, but he's not good enough. That's one of the things that would be so fun about this, obviously, is you team up Nick Foles with Carson Wentz. Then I think the appeal really kicks in there because both those guys, just from a media fan standpoint, what that would happen last time with the backup and the injuries leading to the team to the Super Bowl. So that would just be a funny dynamic if those two ended up together. But this Bears team needs a quarterback. They're willing to spend money for a quarterback and go invest in one. They have the 20... 20th overall pick or something like that they got they did get in the playoffs they just lost right away in the first round so first round pick i could see them being willing to offer but they're not as attractive as my number one destination and that's the indianapolis colts and this is the clear number one to me chicago is is number two just because they've been more heavily rumored but the colts it's not even close that offensive line it's one of the best in the league they're built off the a strong running game led by jonathan taylor young pass catchers in Pittman. Harris Campbell, even guys like Zach Pascal and like a T.Y. Hilton. I know T.Y. Hilton's going to leave, but those guys are still veteran guys. And a guy like T.Y., I think he'd still come back on a discount to return to the hometown. So you got nice receivers there. And of course, the biggest appeal of coming to the Colts would be Frank Wright himself, the offensive coordinator when he won the Super Bowl. I think Wright could really fix Wentz and gets him back to that top 10 quarterback form. If I'm Wentz, I want to go to Indianapolis because of the support staff. And let's not even mention that defense on the other end. This team is Super Bowl ready. They just need to figure it out with their quarterback. And I think if they got Carson Wentz, I really think this team will win the division, turn it around. And I wouldn't be surprised to see them in the AFC championship game next year, just because that's how good this roster is. And if they can get Wentz back to the form, if they can get MVP form Wentz back, Easily. This team could easily be in the conference championship game. So I think the Colts make the most sense there, but it'll be interesting to monitor and see what happens with Carson Wentz as the Eagles commit to Jalen Hurts. I know they have that top 10 pick and maybe if some guy falls and they really fell in love with him, but I think they're going to give Jalen Hurts at least this year to work it out and see if it figures out because he did show some encouraging flashes that I think are worth giving him a chance to earn the starting job for years to come. So that's going to do it for the NFL. Let's shift over to some NBA now. First, Big news to me would be, how about that duel between Luka Doncic and Steph Curry? So much fun to watch. Both guys trading buckets going back and forth. Let's start with Luka. He had 42 points, 11 assists, and was 7 of 12 from 3. I know Luka was struggling from 3, but I hope people take into context the degree of difficulties. His 3s versus a Jay Crowder, let's say. Jay Crowder, almost all catch and shoot. Luka almost always has to create his threes off the dribble, whether that's step backs, whatever it may be, coming off a screen even. He does that more rarely because the ball is always in his hands, but still, it's just really much harder for Luka. So good to see him break out of that three-point slump. And I love the way Luka attacks in pick and rolls as well. He's such a gifted passer. He can make the plays when his shot's falling. He's one of the most unstoppable offensive forces we have 
in this league. And if my math is correct, he's only in his third season, which is bonkers. Then Curry. It's been so great to have Steph back this year. He has been averaging 29 points and six assists. So impressive. And in this game, he lit it up as he always does. 11 made threes, 11 for 19 from three, 57 points. This is the second time this year he's gone. He's had 56 or over, which is this one being 57. And then earlier he going for the career high 60 a few weeks ago. So, so impressed with Curry. When he is hot, it's just something special, man. He is just lighting it up, firing buckets. He needs barely any space, barely any room coming off those screens, barely any time with a quick release he's got and whap. It's in, and there's nothing you can do. He's got limitless range. When Curry's on, it's so much fun to watch. He's such a gifted player. And even how about last night when he was going against the San Antonio Spurs? If you haven't seen it yet, that he was going to pass it. He got caught midair, and then he just kind of flipped it up with his back to the hoop and got made the and one. It was just an incredible play, and he is just such a gifted basketball player. Love watching him play, and it's so good to have him back. And this duel was so much fun to watch. Two of the best offensive players we have in this league going at it. So love watching these guys ball and just love having Curry back. Speaking of guys who are balling, Nikola Jokic has continued to dominate this season. He has been averaging 27 points per game, 11.5 rebounds, 8.5 assists. I know I talked about Jokic and Embiid a little bit last week in the MVP race, but there's a specific reason we got to hit Jokic, and that is, of course, his career high in their loss to the Sacramento Kings. Now, the reason they did lose was, number one, no Jamal Murray. I think that really hurt them. The biggest reason. They also missed Gary Harris in this game, so they were down a few guys, but... When you're looking at Jokic, what he's done this season, stepping up when guys like Jamal Murray have been out and in a lot of cases when he's played inconsistent, just so impressive. In this game, 20 for 33, three for six. How about Jokic? Took 33 shots. That's got to be a career high for him. We've been clamoring for so long for Jokic to be more aggressive, so you love to see that. Three of six from three, 50%, 12 assists, eight boards, and 50 points. I love the way Jokic gets after it. He is capable of taking on, he's so, he has lost a ton of weight, but he's still so big and strong that he's able to exploit those mismatches in the paint. Got a beautiful jump hook. He's got nice footwork too. The deadly fadeaway when he pulls it out is always fun. And he's such a good shooter from three. That's where he making those threes this game. He was three for six. A lot of his damage was late, but you love seeing him get his butt in the paint, be aggressive. And you know, he can hit those shots from outside too. Love watching aggressive Jokic this year. And we know what a phenomenal passer he is. Every game I watch Jokic, he always does something with the ball or makes a pay or a pass that I only few guys on the planet can make. So it's just so much fun to watch him. Love seeing him more aggressive. Yes, they lost. But I think come playoff time, the Nuggets will be a better team because of how aggressive he is. Will they make it as far last year? No, because I think they overperformed last year. But I think Jokic is going to be better. And I've just been so impressed by him. And the last thing before we get to my big takeaway of the week, how about the Knicks? Tom Thibodeau's back at it again. Trading for Derrick Rose, gave up Dennis Smith in the second rounder. Really like the move for both sides. For the Pistons, you get a young guard who you're trying to maximize off the talent. So I think that's a nice move. And Dennis, we know he's got the bounce. So it's be interesting to see if he can put it all together. And now his third NBA team in four years, I believe. And then Rose getting him. The Knicks are trying to win now. They're trying to make the playoffs. Thibodeau's done a great job there. He should be the front runner for coach of the year. So I like getting him. And Rose has also said he's been willing to be the mentor, which in the past, I don't know if he's been willing to mentor a guy like Emmanuel Quigley. So I think it's really cool that he said, no, I'm going to help this guy out. And in his debut game, he had 14 points, three assists. So good spark plug coming off the bench. I think he's could be one of those guys for six man of the year, kind of the second half of his career. Lately, that's what it's been. When you look back, started with the Minnesota days, he was a six, six man guy there. And that's continued in Detroit. So he's going to carry that role here provide some tough shot-making ability. 
He's not the athlete he used to be, but he can still get past guys with quickness. So I'm excited to see Derrick Rose reuniting with Thibodeau. And it'll only be a matter of time, you know, until Luau Dang, Joakim Noah, they already got Taj Gibson on the roster. All the old bulls will be coming back over. Kyle Korver will be out of retirement soon enough, you know. <laughs> so exciting always when we get a trade. Interesting, really interesting to see if Dennis Smith can turn his career around. And I love watching the Knicks because of how Thibodeau coaches them, how hard they play, and the amount of talent they have. So I'm excited to see what Derrick Rose can do there. And finally, our big, my big takeaway of the week, and that is that LaMelo Ball is already well on his way to becoming a superstar in the NBA. This is one of those guys. So Justin Herbert of the NFL. Let's look at that one. Justin Herbert was the third quarterback taken in that draft. And everyone's like, oh, I don't think he'll be good. He's the one with the most bust potential. That's how most people viewed Justin Herbert. And what ended up happening is Herbert came in after that started the second game of the season. He just absolutely balled. LaMelo was the third guy coming over from after playing the year in Australia. The concerns over there about how much he loves the game since he's already made a lot of money. Some of the things about his effort like that. No, he's turned all that around. He looks like a phenomenal player for the season. 14 points, 5.9 rebounds, 6.2 assists, 36% from three coming off the bench. So it's been impressive. So when I read you that stats, you may be thinking like, well, why is this, why, why is this guy worth talking about right now? Those are very pedestrian stats, but those are when he was coming off the bench in his first five starts of his NBA career, 22 points per game, six assists per game, six rebounds per game, 44% from the field, 51% from three, and 81 from the free throw line. He makes these guys, he elevates everyone's game when he starts. That's why I think they need to continue to start him. And he's elevated his own game, obviously, too, with the three-point shooting being incredible. I don't think that's sustainable, but he's already over league average at the 36%. So I think he'll end up somewhere in the 40s, which is much better than I thought he'd be in his first season in the NBA. So give him a lot of credit there. He's only 19 years old too, and he's the youngest player in NBA history with seven threes and the youngest Hornet to have a 20-point assist game ever too. So, so special, so phenomenal. His shooting is incredible right now. It's the one thing they've been running off screens and letting him hit some tough shots too. That's the biggest thing for him. And pick and roll. He's just such a deadly passer there. There's a reason Miles Bridges is wide receiver one to him. The amount of highlight plays those two connect on is a lot of fun. He's already one of the best passers in the league. Just watch a Hornets game and you'll be able to see he makes passes that only the LeBron Jokic's of the world can make. And he's helping transform this Hornets team into a winning team along with Gordon Hayward and Terry Rozier. So, so impressed by LaMelo. Love what I'm seeing. I'd like to see him be able to attack and get to the basket a little bit better, but that was one of the knocks on him coming into the NBA. So it's not that surprising that he hasn't been able to put that part of his game together just quite yet, but so impressed by LaMelo. So defensively, he also leads... I believe the status he leads all rookies in points, rebounds, assists, steals, and I think percentages as well, as I just listed out these percentages are impressive when you factor in the minutes. So I hope they continue to start him. Love what they've seen out of LaMelo Ball. And just like I was wrong about Justin Herbert, I am already ready to admit that I was wrong about LaMelo Ball being a bust. I think he's going to be a really good player and much better than I thought he was going to be. So props to LaMelo Ball. He's been phenomenal and really fun to watch. As many of you Jazz fans know who have been watching him recently, I'm sure. And speaking of those jazz, I will just that Donovan Mitchell step back last night was absolutely nasty. Love the way Utah's playing right now. I talked about them a few weeks ago, but they're just phenomenal right now. The way they defend, they play hard on both ends of the floor, the defense, the shooting, the threat that Gobert is, is the lob guy. And just the job Mitchell does closing games like that. They're a really fun team to watch. And Conley needs to get back soon just to make them help them secure that number one seed. But they've been a lot of fun to watch this year, just like Mo Ball has. Alrighty, that's going to do it for this edition of the From the Stands podcast. Thank you guys so much as always for watching. I'll be back with more 
NBA talk next week. And I'm going to hit on the NFL coaching carousel, what I think of all those different hires around the league. So thank you guys so much. Signing off.